0: The National Archives podcast series, formal record and courtroom reality in 13th and 14th century England, presented by Professor Paul Brand. This talk was recorded on the 26th of June 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. I feel a little bit of a fraud after the Pipe Roll Society not actually talking about pipe rolls. But then I remember that the Pipe Roll Society has among its objects um, the promotion of the study, not just of pipe rolls, but of governmental records, uh, the promotion and the publication of uh, other kinds of governmental records as well, and plea rolls certainly are one of those. And it's plea rolls I'm talking about and also law reports and the complementarity of the two of them. One of the major changes associated with the reign of King Henry II, King of England 1154 to 1189, was the beginnings of the keeping of written records of proceedings in the king's courts. A record not just of final judgments, but also of pleadings between the parties, arguments between the parties, and of the various preliminary appearances before any pleading took place. Up to then, the only record of these had been in the memory of those who had witnessed litigation, or, but only apparently quite rarely, in a record contained in a royal charter recording the outcome of litigation. Now, what happened in royal courts was recorded in what came to be called plea rolls of those courts. However, we know of this change only from indirect evidence there are no surviving plea rolls of a date earlier than the mid 1190s and that seems to be about two decades after the practice itself had begun and it is a very significant part of the change that has elsewhere been described as a change from memory to written record to memory being in the minds of observers to a written record of what had taken place. The form of the record in courts, the King's courts, was a separate plea roll made for each of the four terms, the four law terms of each year. In the case of the main central court for the hearing of civil litigation, the Common Bench, normally uh, holding its sessions in Westminster Hall. And within the roll, the proceedings were enrolled in roughly chronological order with headings assigning the proceedings to individual return days, subdivisions of the term each lasting for around a week rather than to individual days within it. And the same, in effect, was true of the Court of King's Bench when it was recreated in the 1230s as a permanent court. The form was rather different in the case of individual visitations of the Justices of the General heir. Here, there was no kind of subdivision of the business into return days. All business was assigned to the first day of the heir. But different kinds of business, civil pleas, crown pleas, criminal pleas, were enrolled in separate sections. Civil pleas from other counties got their own section, and later also further sections for quo warranto pleas, where the king challenged um, claims to franchises, and also sections for plaints, and that's in, towards the end of the 13th century. And they all came to be in separate roles. Apart from the heir, each stage of litigation was enrolled separately as and when it happened, though the jury verdict and the final judgment were generally but not invariably recorded uh, in a post-air added to the original um, enrolment of pleadings. Formal record conjures up a picture of one single official court record, a single plea roll for each of the king's courts. But the reality, probably from the very beginning of the king's courts, was rather different. Position seems to have been that a separate plea roll was made for each of the justices serving in the court. And from at least 1219 onwards, there was also a senior clerk in the common bench, the keeper of rolls and writs, for whom yet another role was compiled, the so-called Rex role. The so-called Rex role, because it actually has Rex in the top right-hand corner. It was quite common for several duplicate roles compiled for different justices to survive from the heirs of the reign of Edward I towards the end of the 13th century. Also not uncommon for Rex roles to survive for the common bench, And there are three surviving roles made for one of the junior justices of the common bench, also in the reign of Edward I. And we know that particular justice handed in several more, because there's actually a record of the roles that were handed in. In the reign of Edward I, it's also common for two roles to survive from the court of King's bench. We might perhaps have expected that different roles compiled for different justices would be genuinely complementary or at the least have found different ways of recording the same business. Little work has been done in comparing different roles for the same term or the same kinds of business in an air when they survive, but the general impression is that they bear a close resemblance, though some admit some material that the others contain. And there's evidence to suggest that that is deliberate rather than simply a matter of chance or administrative convenience. There's a passage in the law treatise known as Bracton which tells us that the role compiled by the Keeper of rolls and writs is the first role of the court, whose enrolment, the author says, was to be followed by all subsequent roles and which were to draw from it their origin and authority. And we know that that was then changed as a result of a deliberate decision in 1253 when it was the Chief Justice of the court who became responsible for the first role of the court. Although the keeper of rolls and writs was instructed to continue producing a second roll, and so it seems to have been a deliberate and conscious choice to ensure that all the rolls, when they recorded the same business, did so in identical or near identical terms. We also find something very similar being described for the heir in response to one of the complaints against the justices and their clerks in 1290 which spoke of an enrolment being made in the Hertfordshire era of 1287, first in the role of the Chief Justice, then in the role of the Lord King, that is, the role of the Keeper of rolls and writs and of the other Justices. So the end effect, despite the apparent multiplication of roles, was in fact to produce a single official record, though one produced, reproduced in multiple more or less accurate copies. Although the plea rolls seem to have been intended from the first to be a permanent record of the business of the court, there's no evidence from before the middle of the 13th century of any special care being taken to ensure that they were handed in to the king's treasury for permanent preservation. So it's not entirely surprising that despite the making of multiple originals, we now have plea rolls covering only about half the terms when the common bench is known to have held sessions, prior to about 1270. And there's a similar rate of losses for the records of the justices in air. Things get much better after 1270, and thereafter it's rare not to have at least one role for each term that the Common Bench and King's Bench held sessions, and common for there to survive multiple roles for sessions of the general air. Only lesser royal courts, like the assizes and jail delivery courts, are less well represented in surviving records how were they written? The plea rolls were not, of course, written by the justices whose names they bear, but by clerks work, work, working for them. But it's not till the early 14th century that we can first begin to see just how many clerks there were who contributed to the making of a plea roll. And then, unfortunately, only in the case of the role of the Chief Justice of the Common Bench. As from Easter 1305, the Chief Justice's roles came to include... At the bottom of most membranes, the names of the clerks who'd written the membranes. Com- most commonly a single clerk, sometimes two. As many as 32 different clerks contributed to the writing of the 235 membranes of please in that term, Easter 1305. As many as 43 to the writing of the 346 membranes of please for Trinity term 1307. And the business of enrolment wasn't evenly divided between them. Some clerks wrote as many as 20 different membranes. Others no more than one membrane each. And all of these clerks were apparently working under the overall supervision of the chief clerk of the chief justice of the court. When were they written? It seems clear that at least some of the individual enrolments, particularly those relating to defaults, absences, and judgments for further process against defendants to secure appearance were written in advance of the formal judgment by the court, but might then have to be cancelled if the defendant did put in a last-minute appearance. Others can be shown to be made in court while the pleading was going on, or no later than the time the court adjourned for the day, or perhaps in the afternoon when they sat in a London city church, actually writing uh, the plea rolls. Major delays in enrolment proceedings seem only to have occurred as a rule when a case was adjourned for further pleading later that same term. For, as the enrolment of a case heard in Hillary Term 1292 tells us, under these circumstances, there would be no attempt to enrol what had been said at her first hearing. Now, although the plea roll was compiled as an official record for the justices of the court by their clerks, it seems clear that litigants and their legal representatives did have some degree of input into their making. There's some evidence, mainly from alterations made to enrolments, to suggest that litigants and their legal agents were entitled to inspect individual enrolments relating to their litigation and might persuade the justices of the court to order changes made in those enrolments if they were inaccurate. George Sales long ago noted some evidence from King's Bench in the 1290s to suggest that the input of litigants and their legal agents could be even more substantial than this and come at an earlier stage in the process of composition. For he found evidence that clerks might work from written copies or summaries of arguments provided by the lawyers acting for the parties. But there's little evidence for this particular phenomenon from the common bench in the same period and it seems unlikely that it was at all common. What is common, what there is evidence to suggest is common, was for litigants to provide written schedules, recording adjournments when they were made at the request of the parties, and also the appointment of attorneys, something relatively small, a slip of parchment, and uh, those were handed over. The plea rolls were a written record, a written version of what remained essentially an oral legal process. Even the preliminary stages of litigation, when the defendant stayed away from court, all the court did was to order the next stage in process against them, required a personal appearance in court by the litigant or his legal representative, for the court's crier to require the defendant's appearance on four successive days, and for the litigant or his representative to ask for and obtain a spoken authorization, a judgement of the court for the next stage in process. And the heart of litigation, pleading of the case between parties or their legal representatives, leading to judgment of the court in favour of one or other of the parties, or more commonly authorising some form of proof, most commonly jury trial, was in similarly an entirely verbal or oral process. Indeed, the continuing primacy of the non-written, the remembered, overwritten memory is shown both by the continuing process as late as 1300, of royal justices, when giving judgment, first making a record of the case, so-called, an oral summary version of the case and the pleadings in it, and also of their occasionally overriding the written record of the plea rolls by their own non-written record memory of what actually happened. The written plea plea roll enrolment could not in any case ever be an accurate word-for-word, action-for-action transcription of all that was said and done in court, especially at the pleading stage. Too much was said and too much was done for it all to be written down in the final record. And much of it was arguably irrelevant to the final outcome of the case. There was certainly room for argument, even a sense of grievance at the margins, Commonly it was one of the complaints against the justices tried for misconduct in 1289-93 to that they had refused to allow or enrol certain arguments made by them but rejected by the court. Some went further and claimed that justices had also refused to seal a written record of the argument, the exception, produced by the litigant as they should have done under the terms of a statute enacted in 1285. But no one could ever have expected the whole of the courtroom argument to be enrolled. Parchment was too expensive, and in the absence of any usable shorthand technique, it was impossible for clerks to take everything down. The only way they could have done that is if they had slowed down all of the proceedings to dictation speed, and clearly nobody ever considered that as an alternative possibility. From around 1270 onwards... It becomes possible to supplement the evidence of the plea rolls by drawing on the evidence of the first surviving law reports. These are very different in form from the individual enrolments contained in the plea rolls, for they generally report what was said in court in the form of direct dialogue ascribed to particular individuals written in Anglo Norman French as contrasted to the indirect speech given in Latin of individual plea roll enrolments. Such reports are, moreover, found in manuscripts which show no sign of ever having been in official custody or of having been drawn up for any kind of official use. In contrast to the plea rolls, which were, as we've seen, drawn up for individual justices and handed in to the king's treasury to become the official archive of the court. And there's no evidence to suggest that these manuscripts were themselves copied from any kind of official law reports, which were once in official custody. While we know that the clerks were the compilers of the plea roll enrolments, it's much more difficult to ascertain who compiled individual law reports. It seems likely that they were produced for different purposes by different groups, but that the most important group of compilers, almost from the beginning, were law students, a group known as apprentices who attended the court to listen to legal arguments and judgments there in order to gain the legal expertise they then needed to to practice law themselves. One other characteristic of the reports, which sets them again apart from the plea roll enrolments of the cases, needs to be mentioned here. There's rarely much difficulty, except for the archivist dealing with fragments of the plea rolls, and um, coming here reminds me of my time in... Chancery Lane. When I did, on occasions, deal with fragments of plea rolls that were undated, that I was trying to place in uh, either surviving plea rolls or sometimes they even came from rolls none of which then survived, and you then have to quite laboriously, and I did on occasions quite laboriously, actually date those things, and then for the first time since. Probably the Middle Ages, they became available for searchers to actually look at again in a way that hadn't been true. Quite attractive thing to do. Anyway, um, there's merely much difficulty in dating particular enrolments. They come as part of a role belonging to a particular term or heir and can then be assigned to a particular return day or days within that term. By contrast, none of the earliest law reports... None for the period prior to the early 1290s survives in a dated or even datable collection. Even when we begin to get dated collections, the dating in the manuscript sometimes turns out to be inaccurate, while other r- reports survive only as part of collections whose basis of arrangement is topical and not chronological. So the first task of the legal historian and editor who wants to use those reports particularly if he wants, as he should, to use them in combination with the enrolments, is to identify and date the individual reports, something for which the reports themselves generally provide at least some clues, though one clue they often don't provide is the correct name of the parties or the correct name of any of the places involved in the litigation. So that's one thing you can't actually use most of the time. During the first two decades of law reporting, down to the early 1290s, law reports survive only in relatively small quantities. Reports have now been found for just over 400 cases. Most were heard in the common bench and the air. There were also some reports of cases heard before assize justices, and there are surviving reports of at least two cases heard before the exchequer of the Jews. No cases before the exchequer, no cases before King's Bench. Very strange that two cases before the Extractor of the Jews get reported, but they do. No individual common bench term is represented by more than seven surviving reports. No year by more than 19. Only the 1285 Northamptonshire air, for reasons not at all clear, is represented by as many as 41 surviving reports. And they don't all survive in a single manuscript. They're taken from a... Um, at least four or five different manuscripts. There's a massive expansion in the quantity of surviving reports from 1291 onwards. It's a collection of no less than 84 reports of cases heard in the Common Bench in Michaelmas term 1291. And a number of other such collections survive from the 1290s and a continuous and almost unbroken flow of reports from Michaelmas term 1299 onwards. There's also a similar increase in the quantity of surviving reports from the heirs, mostly in the form of collections ascribed to the heirs concerned. In the case of the common bench, at least, it seems that the massive increase in the number of surviving reports is more than just an accident of survival and is probably to be ascribed to a rebuilding of the court itself during the summer of 1291 which for the first time gave the apprentices of the court somewhere they could listen and record what was going on in the court, what was later to be described as the crib. And um, there's no actual payment for the building of the crib, but there is a surviving account for building work done in the common bench in the summer of 1291. And it can be no coincidence, as they say, the Michaelmas term 1291 after that summer is the first term for which we have this really large number of reports. Now, even during the period before the 1290s, it's by no means unknown for there to survive more than one apparently independent report of the same case. Indeed, for some cases, there are as many as three or even four apparently quite independent reports. That's even more the case after 1290. Indeed, there are as many as six different and apparently quite independent collections of reports covering Michaelmas term 1302. The different reporters do not all cover the same cases, but there's enough overlap between them in the cases they do report to give us what amounts to a kaleidoscopic effect, allowing us to synthesise them and also the information of the plea roll enrolment into a much fuller account of what have gone on in court than either the plea roll or any one of the reports by themselves would have done. What do they provide supplementary evidence on? Well, the first thing is on the language. We've already noted in passing one important respect in which the reports allow us to get much closer to what was said in court than the enrolments. And this is the fact that they are generally in French, Anglo-Norman French, the variety of French spoken in in England, the language actually used in court, and in the direct speech spoken in court, albeit with occasional proverbial phrases in English, brief tags in Latin from Roman and canon law and also from the Bible. Of course, again, the reporters could not hope to catch more than part of what was said in court. But we have some reason to suppose that what they do report is what the speakers actually said. And we get it complete with the occasional profanity, the occasional risque story told by one of the justices. Indeed, they are one of the best sources for spoken Anglo-Norman French. Indeed, for spoken medieval French, to core, There is nothing remotely comparable in uh, French sources from Paris or anywhere else. They also tell us about the participants. Anyone who reads the plea rolls alone will tend to get the impression that when cases came on for pleading... It was either the parties themselves or perhaps the professional attorneys, the often professional agents whom they appointed to win or lose their cases, who spoke. It's only in the most exceptional cases, and for some very special reason, that we hear at all of the other, more specialised group of professional lawyers, the sergeants, speaking on behalf of litigants. The sergeants do, it's true, begin to make more regular appearances on the common bench plea rolls from Mickelness term 1293 onwards. But it's only in connection with the making of final concords, agreements, formal agreements made under the auspices of the court. But a moment's glance at any collection of reports will dispel this illusion. Litigants did not in general speak for themselves, though very occasionally they did so, and it's nice to have that because it indicates that it did on occasion happen, that we can trust what we see in the report. Nor did attorneys normally speak at the pleading stage, though sometimes they were questioned by the court on particular points and sometimes the court communicated with the litigant by saying something to his attorney. Most of the speaking in court was done by men whom we can identify without much difficulty as belonging to a relatively stable group of professional sergeants whose main base was the common bench but who also spoke for litigants in King's Bench and in the general air. A group whose numbers seemed to remain stable at around 35 members for the best part of the 20-year period between 1290 and 1310. The official record is, in general, equally unforthcoming in revealing which of the justices of the court actually participated in the hearing of any particular case. The impression they tend to give, if only by default, is that all the justices appointed to serve in a court heard every single case. There are, it's true, occasional references showing only a single justice or a pair of justices out of the five, six or seven justices assigned to a court actually hearing cases the reports reveal on a regular basis which justices actually participated actively in the hearing of particular reported cases. They also show what the rolls don't show at all, some of the senior clerks of the court assisting the justices in dealing with the court's business. But there are two problems still about using the evidence of the reports. One is that they don't in general tell us if a justice was present for the hearing of a case but said nothing. So, we can't entirely rely on them for the court's internal arrangements. The second, a much more serious problem in the case of the common bench, is that there are good reasons to suppose that the co- court was commonly divided into two separate sections for dealing with business from at least 1290 onwards. Our reports seem all or almost all to come from only a single section of the court. Perhaps because the crib itself was positioned so as to give the apprentices access to courtroom discussions in one section, but not in the other section of the court. We therefore know a lot about what one group of justices was doing and saying in the court, almost nothing about what the other group was doing or saying. The plea rolls are also, I think, misleading in the impression they normally give that pleading in individual cases took place in the course of a single uninterrupted session held on a single day, with each argument in the case following smoothly on from the next and leading on to issue for jury trial or giving of judgment or, less commonly, adjournment of the case for judgment in a later term. The reports are much better at revealing some of the complexities which the formal record generally ignores. More difficult cases seem commonly to have been heard over the course of two or more days. Sometimes they were simply continued on the following day, but often simply on another day. In at least two instances, the report show pleading has been continued over at least four days within a single term. And when a hearing resumed, it seems commonly to have been the practice for someone to give their resume of what had been said at the previous hearing. This was not a job which the clerks performed, despite their record-keeping functions, but something which we can see both sergeants and justices doing. Sometimes only a sergeant was in the position to do this, for the group of justices hearing the case was quite different from those hearing a prior stage. What the reports also show is that even the course of a single day's pleadings was not necessarily, or perhaps even generally, smooth and uninterrupted. They tell us about sergeants requesting permission from the court to impal, that is, to interrupt proceedings in order to consult with their fellow sergeants and the client and or his attorneys. This was regularly requested when the litigant or his attorney had been asked whether he avowed something said by the sergeant, that is, whether he wanted to accept it as fully binding on him. It was also regularly requested when a deed was produced in litigation and the party had either to acknowledge it as genuine or impugn its validity. A sergeant might also request permission to impale at other times too. Even the reports don't make clear is how long the court allowed for impaling, or under what circumstances, if any, such permission might, re- might be refused. Nor, I'm afraid, is it clear whether the court actually got on with other business while impaling was going on. We might think they did, but equally we might think they did not. Maybe they went off and had a coffee. Who knows? Potentially even more disruptive is something else which the reports reveal, though only in passing the way that the justices of the court might come into court during the course of a hearing. On the first day of what turned out to be a three-day hearing about the right to present a rector to a vacant church in 1302, the only justice initially present in court seems to have been the Chief Justice, Ralph Hengham. The reporter notes that at a particular point in proceedings, his fellow Justice Howard came into court. Proceedings had to be interrupted while Hengham explained to Howard what was going on in the case. Something similar seems to have happened in the case of 1305, where the initial pleading took place before Mallory, Justice, and the senior clerk, F. Henry of Hales. But Pashley, lucky sergeant, got a chance to rehearse a previous argument, which hadn't succeeded with the first lot, in the presence of Chief Justice Hengham, when Hengham turned up in court. It's only, I think, by means of concrete examples so that I can show clearly what the reports included in the form of argument and interchange of views that the enrolments leave leave out. And I've chosen two early 14th century cases in the illustrative materials to demonstrate the points I've just been making about other things the reports include that the enrolment leave out. And let me start with case one from Hillary term 1305. It's a case brought by the abbot of the Cistercian House of Stanley, close to Carne in Wiltshire, and his brother, Roger. The enrolment gives his surname as brother Roger Fekedy, and I have my suspicions that that is a foreshortening of the name he was actually assigned, Uh, and you'll see the significance of that in a moment. Alleging assault and imprisonment and seizure of his goods. The reports name neither the defendants nor where and when the assault took place. The enrolment indicates that defendants were John of Studley and his wife Alice, Master Philip of Winterbourne, It sounds a fairly grand name for someone simply sitting around in a house, William of Bedstone, Joan Parfitt, and Agnes, the daughter of Ella Eustace, that they'd taken place in the neighbouring village of Studley, close to um, Stanley, and had taken place in September 1303, a year and a half before the proceedings came on in Hillary Term 1305. Now, the first thing that the report found in similar versions in two different manuscripts, and in both cases in a sequence of reports belonging to this term, so it really wasn't terribly difficult identifying this case and pairing it up with the enrolment. What the report tells us that the enrolment does not is the names of the justices and lawyers actually involved in the hearing. One justice was involved in the hearing. He's the only one mentioned. He's berryford If there were other justices present in court, they clearly said nothing that the reporter thought worth recording. We also hear the names of the sergeants acting for the two sides. The lawyer who was acting for the abbot and his monk was a man called Ralph of Huntington, who seems to have come from Huntington, the, the town of Huntington, who was a sergeant from the 1280s onwards, and continued through to the early 14th century. When he dies in the second decade of the 14th century, he has a house in Watling Street in London, which he leaves to his widow, Denise. He also holds property in Huntingdon and Sawston, which suggests that he continued to have a connection with Huntingdon. And the two lawyers, the two sergeants, acting for the defendants are both men from Lincolnshire. Robert of Mablethorpe, from Place in Lincolnshire, who's a sergeant of the Common Bench from 1299 for 20 years and then becomes a justice of King's Bench, ends up as a chief justice of King's Bench in 1329. So he has a long and fairly distinguished career. And his fellow sergeant was a man called Gilbert of Tothby from that Place in Lincolnshire that is no more than five miles away from Mablethorpe. And this is an extraordinarily common but rather strange phenomenon. It's not at all uncommon with the sergeants of the common bench that you find clusters of two, three, four or even five sergeants who come from within a 10 or 15 mile radius of each other. Um, all in practice at the same time. It's not as though one is a patron of a younger man. They're all pretty much coevals. These are one of those pairs. And there's also a remark in here by Nicholas of Warwick, the King's sergeant in the common bench, who's probably not acting for either party, but is simply listening to what's being said in the court. On the language and the argument, we can see, if we look at the report and compare it with the enrolment, that the enrolment omits altogether the first unsuccessful argument by the defence, which objects to the count, the statement of claim, the statement of complaint, claiming joint damages for the abbot and monk in respect of wrongdoing committed against the monk alone. And we then see Berriford's judgment for overruling this. The report suggests that the enrolment is also giving us only an edited and rather summary version of the defence then pleaded, which took the form of a confession and avoidance, omitted the arrest and the imprisonment, but not the beating, and showed a justification for doing this. The enrolment tells us nothing of what the report tells us, that the monk had asked to speak privately with John of Studley's wife in a private place and of throwing her down on the bed. And that's what the report says. Throwing her to the ground is what the enrollment says, and that somehow sounds a little bit more physical, a little less on the verge of uh, a sexual assault. And we hear nothing also in the plea roll, but only in the report, of the wife claiming to have raised the hue and cry. Um, the reaction to criminal offence being committed against her. Now, the report indicates that initially the plaintiff's lawyer wanted to respond to this justification by simply reasserting that he had been taken maliciously and by force and against the peace, but that he was forced also specifically to deny that he entered the chamber to have intercourse with Alice or committing any misdeed there. And the point of that is that it ensures that this specific denial is before the jury at the subsequent trial. And what we can see from the report is that they got there by means of judicial questioning by Berryford of some crudity. Huntington, we're ready to prove that that they took us maliciously and by force and against the peace. Berryford, did you go there as they claim or not? Huntington, we went there quite properly... And by their malice they took us and against the king's peace. We will prove this. Beriford, why did you go there? Who sent for you? Huntington for relaxation. Beriford to fuck the gentleman's wife. And it is as crude as that in the original French. Huntington, no, it was because of old friendship. Beriford, that was an evil friendship. Tothby. He entered the chamber. Warwick, if he'd done such a thing to me, I would have dealt with him differently. And I think um, physical violence is the implication of that. Berryford, according to what he says, you went into the chamber, which is a place giving rise to suspicion. What do you hope to recover if that is the case? As if to say nothing. The implication is you deserve be- being beaten up if that's what you were doing. Huntington, we're ready to prove that he did not enter the chamber or any other suspicious place, but that he took us out of their own malice. Toddby, we're ready to prove that the abbot sent him 40 shillings the following day to make amends for the trespass and to stop scandal. So you're getting two diff- very different sides to this particular story. The importance of finding the enrolment is shown by the fact that it alone provides us with the sequel to this case the jury verdict. And I hesitate to call it the truth about the case because all I think that he actually shows is that the jurors believed the abbot and the monk, not John and Alice or the others, and there were no independent witnesses to the case. So I think the abbot did a pretty good job of convincing the jurors, but I have my doubts as to whether they were rightly convinced of that. There's enough circumstantial evidence, I think, to suggest that that isn't really the case at all. Okay, case two. Case two comes from Michaelmas Term 1306. It's one of a small but interesting group of cases brought by tenants against their lords, alleging assault, imprisonment, seizure of the tenant's goods by the lord, but in which the real underlying issue is whether or not the tenant is the villein, the unfree tenant of that lord. Here, again, neither version of the report gives us any names. Though both vision, uh, versions come from uh, collections of reports dated Michaelmas Term 1306, it's comparatively easy to identify the relevant enrolment on the roll for that term. And we can see that the dispute is between the lord of the Northumberland village of Pigden, a little northwest of Morpeth, Andrew of Kirkby, and one of his tenants called Richard, son of Margaret of Pigden and that the alleged events had taken place in January of that same year, 1306. Only version one of the two versions makes it entirely clear that the pleading in this case took place over the course of at least two separate days. Both suggest that there was some kind of interruption, probably only a short one, in the first day's proceedings, when the plaintiff sergeant asked whether a defence which had been made was avowed. None of that is mentioned in the enrolment. On the personnel involved, here both sides, both Lord and Tenant, seem to have had only a single sergeant to speak for them. Interestingly, it's the tenant who has the local sergeant, William of Harle, who came from Kirkharl in Northumberland, about ten miles west of Pigden, acting for him. He had been a sergeant, he'd become a sergeant of the common bench in 1299, served there on a regular basis down to 1320 becomes a justice and then chief justice of the common bench, justice of heirs, and doesn't die till 1347. So he's got a long and quite distinguished career uh, ahead of him. His opponent, the Lord, had the services of a man called William of Ruston, probably came from Yorkshire, who probably became a sergeant at the same time as Hull, and been an attorney before that. And he served only a relatively uh, short period as a common bench sergeant. Court personnel are a more complicated matter. Version 1 mentions no justices at all in its report of the first day's pleading, nor does Version 2 in its report of this stage in the pleading. Version 2, however, does show that the Chief Justice's Chief Clerk, Henry of Hales, showing the enrolment to two of the justices of the court, and they may have been the justices who actually heard it. And version one then shows Berryford and Howard in court for the second stage of pleading, but Berryford having an apparently private conversation about the case with Stanton. And that, again, is quite interesting in the reports. You quite often get what appear to be quite private conversations that happen to be picked up by the reporters. Arguments. The major difficulty for the Lord and for his sergeant in this case was the need to keep two very different legal rules in mind when answering the plaintiff's allegations and to take account of both of them in making an answer. The first basic rule was that the Lord might be considered to have tacitly enfranchised his villain if he answered him in the King's court as though he were a free man by failing immediately to make an exception of villainage against him saying that he was not entitled to an answer because he was the Lord's villain. But by doing this, the Lord was probably implicitly admitting that he had done everything that the villain alleged. And the second basic rule was that while the Lord was entitled to take his villain's chattels and other movables to arrest him and even put him in the stocks, he wasn't entitled to imprison him using fetters or to assault him. And the Lord, therefore, had to answer such allegations, even if they were made by an unfree um, plaintiff. And so there was a special problem for the Lord if his alleged villain made coupled allegations, some of which had to be answered, but others of which, the exception of villainage, was a full answer. And if you follow it through, there's quite a lot of toing and fro showing them negotiating with that, with one side and then the other, trying to press home an advantage on a tacit uh, granting of freedom or, alternatively, failing to do so. But I think I probably don't want to go through that now. What I do want, however, to do is to draw your attention to something that only in the enrolment tells us. It's the enrolment that tells us that in practice the jury's verdict was very largely concerned with the issue of villainage. We hear of the tenant's grandfather being born in Galloway in Scotland, coming to England to trade, deciding eventually he wanted to stay, taking land on farm from John of Kirkby, Andrew's grandfather, and of the jury finding grandfather and his descendants only ever paying a fixed rent, not paying or performing any distinctively unfree customs or services, finding also that there had been no beating. It also shows the peasant succeeding against his lord and tells us something also, and this is quite interesting, of the circumstances which lay behind the events of January 1306. Andrew had called Richard his villain. Richard had denied it. Andrew then got together a group of his servants to expel Richard from his house and seize his grain. The Lord paid a high price for his actions against a peasant who could prove his freedom. Committal to the fleet jail, probably only for a brief period, a fine of four marks to the king, and payment of damages of £14.17, and shillings, which is really quite a lot of money by early 14th century standards, to his tenant. Now, even when we have both enrolments and reports there are still clearly things missing from our picture of court, important elements of what went on in court about which we only hear very rarely, if at all. Firstly, our picture of the courtroom tends to be of a quiet and orderly place, and it's natural to project that backwards into the past. There are, however, just enough passing references to indicate that the level of extraneous noise in the 13th-century courtroom could be high high enough to make it impossible even for the justices to hear what was being said. In the 1302 case, for example, Warwick vouched the oral record of the justices on something he just said. They refused to do so because they said they had been unable to hear it. And I'm sure it's not Warwick simply speaking in a very low voice that nobody could hear. I think he spoke in a perfectly normal voice, but there happened to be people chattering not very far away. We also hear a little about gestures and actions in court. Um, a little. And that little is enough to whet our appetite without ever coming anywhere near sating it. In the 1303 case, the sergeant of the abbot of Leiston in Suffolk justified a distraint of chattels, of movables, I think actually of animals, as made to enforce the performance of homage and other services owed to him. A sergeant in reply said that the homage was owed both for the land his client held and for other land that was now held by the abbot himself and asked the court's judgment as to whether the abbot could still justify a distraint made claiming all of the services. One of our reports tells us that Chief Justice Hingham raised one of his hands and asked evidently mockingly whether Ashby could do one-handed homage. Which could only be done with two hands. If you're going to divide homage, then one-handed homage makes no sense. And a different and, symbol- and symbolic gesture appears to have accompanied a judgment in an action of naifety, finding that a defendant was the villain of the lord who was the plaintiff. He was handed over to the lord per toupam, or in French, par le paletoupe. This has been translated, um, it's been a real challenge to uh, translators and editors. It's been translated as delivery by the neck, more recently as delivery by the elbow. But what it actually seems to mean is that the Lord symbolically took possession of him by seizing his forelock. He was actually taken by the forelock um, and handed over. So, truths, half-truths and untruths. The plea rolls, the formal records of the king's court in 13th and early 14th century England, are a mixture of truths, half-truths and untruths. To the former category belong in general basic information such as the names of parties to litigation. But having said that, I hesitate a little because sometimes the names to litigation are clearly untrue. Sometimes they're actually making a point. Um, defendants are sometimes given names that are already making a particular case that the plaintiff wants to make. Anyway, the location of land or other property in land litigation and the date and the place of incidents which gave rise to litigation, such as the two early 14th century cases I've been discussing. they are also wholly truthful, or nearly so, about such matters, the allegations made in court by the plaintiff or claims made there, and the issues put to juries. In the categories of half-truths, I think we would need to place the implication that it was the litigant or his attorney that did the speaking in court, and the way they seem to picture a smooth, uninterrupted process of pleading. The facade we can only begin to penetrate once we get the additional information provided for us by surviving law reports. As for untruths, they're perhaps best seen in some of the wilder allegations made by plaintiffs faithfully recorded on the rolls. The Abbot of Stanley's allegation of an attack with swords, bows and arrows, or seizure of goods and chattels to the value of 100 marks from him, neither of which were clearly true. Perhaps also to be counted in this category is the story the juries were persuaded to recount of what had really happened between brother Roger Fekedy and Alice, wife of John of Studley. For even on their version of the story, we're told that the monk allowed himself to be taken into her chamber and seated on her bed. And that certainly suggests to me a degree of intimacy between them, which the jurors were otherwise, and in all other respects, at pains to deny. But I leave you with that. Thank you. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives.